0: Is there such a thing like solidarity in trade? Hasn't there been solidarity in the past? Did collaboration between companies exist? What kind of mutual trust and collaboration does competition law allow these days? In these days where we try to achieve a circular economy, I'm Julia Hörnig, assistant professor at the Erasmus School of Law, and today we ask, What is wrong with maritime trade? Sustainable law talk right from the center of trade. Rotterdam. Welcome to the sixth episode of this podcast, where we try to tackle patterns of trade which developed over centuries and discuss potential solutions. For our sixth episode, I'm more than happy to welcome our two guest speakers, Professor Dr. Maria Sofia Fusaro and Maria Serafimova. Welcome, Maria Sofia Fusaro is professor in early modern social and economy history at the University of Exeter where she directs the Center for Maritime Historical Studies. She has been awarded two European Research Council major grants, LOOP and Trans TransRisk. Both these projects are concerned with transnational analysis of the legal and economic underpinning of early modern globalization. She published various articles and books on commercial law and trade in the early modern times, as well as medieval times, with a strong focus on maritime matters. Maria Serofimova is a fully qualified German lawyer and legal clerk at the Court of Justice of the European Union, working in the cabinet of the German Advocate General, Professor Juliane Kokot. Previously, she has worked as a lawyer in competition law in Freshfields-Bruckhaus-Deringer LLP in the firm's Berlin office. Her field of expertise lies in EU and German antitrust and competition law, merger control law and state aid law. She completed her legal studies at the European University Viadrina in Frankfurt an der Oder, Germany. She is also a doctoral candidate on competition law at the European University Viadrina. Welcome to you both. I'm really, really happy to have you.
1: The facts.
0: So after a month of silence, We are really, or I am really, really happy to have you both here and to talk about this great topic. So solidarity of trade. Be aware, dear audience, that the discussion is going to be a bit special today. We want to learn from the past of commercial activities and have a look at the current competition law. We will combine both in the end. What a task. I'm happy to have you both here and for the first part, I would like to talk about your research, Maria. You're a historian and dive into the
1: history of trade. What is your research about? Thank you, Julia. Well, my research concerns both the institutional framework and the practically daily operation supporting long-distance trade in late medieval and early modern Europe. Uh, Within this time frame, I also work on the political and economic management of empires in the early modern Mediterranean. To make a short story, both strands of my research are concerned with the effect of proto-globalization on the medieval powers of Europe. Great.
0: So that is that is really really interesting. Um on well the spotlight of our episode will be on general average. I understand that this is an a very very old concept uh, but maybe for the audience Maria can you please explain what the concept of general average or haveri kosse?
1: Of course I will. I think it's best to start with a contemporary definition. Uh, there is a general average act when, and only when, any extraordinary sacrifice or expenditure is intentionally and reasonably made or incurred for the common safety, for the purpose of preserving from peril the property involved in a common maritime adventure. This is the formal definition, which is a bit wordy and very, very legal, and it appears in the contractual regime that actually governs general average today, which are called the York-Antwerp rules. But in practice, when general average is declared, the extraordinary expenses which have been voluntarily done to save successfully a maritime venture are proportionally shared amongst all those who benefited from such acts or expenses, which basically means ship and cargo. And you're right, it is a very, very old uh, solution. It's possibly its most distinctive element is jettison and is something directly referenced already in the Old Testament and in the Act of the Apostles. Uh, So jettison means throwing cargo overboard to lighten a ship in danger. By throwing cargo overboard, you make the ship lighter and therefore more manoeuvrable. It was legally formally enshrined in pre-Roman times. The first formulation, which has not really changed today, is in Justinian's digest. So, yes, very, very old. Oh, yeah, very, very old and with with a lot of concept.
0: Thank you very much. So I wonder if it applies today. I mean, I, I called it solidarity. We will come to this if it's really solidarity or not. We had this several times. The ever-given incident in the Suez Channel disrupted global supply chains. And personally, I must say that I did not witness any solidarity there. The faith of the seafarer was often ignored. When we talked about trade nowadays, solidarity may not be the first aspect that comes to our mind. It is about profit. It is about getting goods from A to B any faster, more efficient, and with lower transaction costs. So solidarity at the other side seems to be a concept where parties voluntarily waive their own possibly selfish interests for the greater good of the community. Maria, is the solidarity in global
1: trade, is this a paradox? The quick answer is yes. (laughs) A bit more articulate answer, and I think the Ever Given is, is a very good example, which in fact made my work as an historian easier, is that... The companies involved were confronted with a monumental set of unexpected expenditures and costs, and solving them, apportioning them through the general average mechanism allows to spread them more widely about all the interested parties. So there is solidarity, but it's a relatively recluded solidarity, that is to say limited to a specific group. So, you are asking, does it apply today? Yes, of course it does. And the concept of deliberate sacrifice for common benefit, but common for whom? For who is solidarity? It's solidarity that applies within a small group under very specific circumstances. You need to have a deliberate sacrifice which saves the venture. And so, The solidarity exists, but between the interest involved in a specific ship.
0: So it's not that
1: selfish. (laughs) Well, it is selfish, but there is a very strong common element in the sense that it allows to spread this cost and not to unjustly or excessively make one party support these extraordinary expenses. Uh, it's an interesting concept behind general average which jurists have been debating for centuries but some agree that basically the it's like a tacit partnership that happens in a case of particular emergency in which everyone that is involved in the ship in one way or another becomes a community of risk so you know it's an automatic tacit partnership Within this partnership, there is solidarity. Okay. Outside, it's a different story. It also seems
0: to be a long time ago. And what were the reasons for the solidarity and the willingness to share these risks?
1: Well, you need to keep in mind that the sea, and you know it very well, is a very hostile environment. Now, the maritime world has always been the riskiest of all working environments. And even today, notwithstanding immense technological development, it is still the riskiest workplace of all. So there is a very long tradition and a continuity about the presence of danger. So solidarity, if you will, is deeply embedded in the maritime world and in people engaged in it. And in fact, this happens across cultures. Uh, it goes beyond trade, if you will. I think that what has happened over the last few years with the big migration crisis in the Mediterranean, seafarers active in the area have been usually far more generous and helpful towards the migrant sinking terrible vessels compared to their governments who instead frequently were keen just to push these boats back. So it, there is an element that such a risky working environment embeds solidarity for reasons of survival. Now, in the case of general average, it's not really, you know, innate solidarity. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's an equitable way to confront dangers. And it's a rational approach because one day I could be the one supporting at expense and tomorrow I could be in benefit of that. So in this way the risk and the cost of extraordinary risk is shared.
0: Okay, then it was not a practice based on solidarity, but rather on pure commercial concerns. But is this a concept that you detect only from maritime supply chains? I mean, of course, at sea there is this permanent risk and uh, there are possible perils of the sea um, that are rather unique. W- was, was risk
1: sharing a concept for all aspects of trade? Well, there is still quite a lot to investigate in this area. And this is particularly true for non-European history. Now, we know that there have been cases still on land river navigation where similar mechanisms were put into action in Chinese history Mm -hmm. a good thousand of years ago we do have reasons to believe that already at the times of the babylonian empire so we're talking like 1800 before the common era a similar method of proportional sharing of protection cost towards for example the possibility of attacks by thieves and brigands was available for desert Um, in fact there's Quite a lot of similarity between the trade in the desert and the trade at sea. Uh, both are very hostile environment and the ship and the caravan cannot count on anyone else. So there is an innate internal solidarity, which is again due to the need of survival.
0: Yeah, okay, that that makes sense. Uh, but um, what changed then? So risk sharing is not omnipresent in trade anymore. At, at least that, well, well, this is my... Uh, My perception, if we think of risk shifting, M&A deals, is risk still omnipresent?
1: Yes, risk is still omnipresent. And in fact, one of the results of climate change has been a general worsening of weather conditions, which is visible both on land at sea and which is making even the evaluation of the risk of maritime trade substantially more volatile. Than it was even twenty years ago. Uh, you're asking whether risk sharing is common. Well, risk shifting, which is what insurance does, uh, has in a sense taken over. It needs to be kept in mind though that even in risk risk shifting, uh, the parties involved tend to be the same. So there is an element of sharing even in the shifting itself. The reason why I think there is now a Bigger future, if you will, for risk sharing is that they're starting to develop exactly in response of climate change risk. The idea that the whole of mankind might be a community of risk, as I was mentioning earlier, and therefore sharing the cost and confrontations of the dangers deriving from climate change might be a good way forward, a way of, if you will, of reconciling social justice and climate action. Yes. Beyond the maritime sector, yes,
0: yeah, that that is exactly what the reason was why we brought you together, basically, and that is also well maybe the explanation for the uh, for the audience why we thought risk at sea, so the perils of the sea, these very imminent um, risk the seafarers have to face, uh, trade traders have to face. Uh, in these circumstances back then, aren't they comparable to the climate change and what we face now? It is not an imminent uh, risk. It is an imminent risk for the ones at sea, for the ones that has, that have to face the weather conditions. But we will face consequences of the climate change one day, but it's not now. So, of course... This makes it uh, difficult, maybe. So, but what is good is that general average survived the maritime law and in maritime trade. Also for the ever given accident, the salvage costs were shared amongst the ship owner and the cargo interest. So Maria, do you think there is beyond reconciling social justice, what you said already, is there hopeful solidarity or did we reach a point of no return?
1: Well, the equitable principle, which lays at the roots of general average, has got very strong ethical implications. And um, it is a way also to to present a legal remedy for unjustified enrichment, for example, which is becoming a very hot topic in terms of trying to, you know, improve the current economic system. When things get really tough. Uh, the apportioning of cost on the basis not only of the financial stakes of individuals, uh, but also of the way in which their own work, their own lives are in danger, is is a, the obvious ethical solution. Um, you mentioned the Ever Given, but only last week there was another case yeah. of a ship by the same True. company. True, same company, yes, <laughs> exactly. And the complexity of These type of operations, particularly because of the effect of climate change. And you were saying we'll pay the price in the future. Yes, we certainly will pay a higher price in the future. But it's already very visible in terms of how climate change is affecting elements of solidarity. And if you think about the general floods, which have been hitting various parts of the world, including Europe, the problem of government having to help And provide additional guarantees so that insurance cover is still available towards this risk. These are all issues that I think are more equitable and with a stronger solidarity, not only in trade, but in managing risk, can be the way forward. Yes,
0: definitely. Um, Thank you very much. Maria, for this, we will now look into the law that sets boundaries for collaboration and trust. Um, So, competition law. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Julia.
2: (laughs) The legal issues.
0: Coming to the second part, Maria, your research and your working focus has been competition law. What is competition law and why is it important?
2: A very good question. Thanks a lot, Julia. Competition law is all about the prevention of distortion on the markets caused by anti-competitive practices by undertakings. For this reason, the treaties of the European Union prohibit any agreements between undertakings affecting trade between EU countries which could prevent or distort competition. To put it in the words of the EU Commissioner for Competition, Margrethe Vestager, strong competition enforcement is fundamental for businesses and consumers alike to reap the full benefits of the single market. In a nutshell, competition law is beneficial for us all as it helps lower prices, enhance the quality and innovation of products and services, and it gives a cons- consumers a wider variety of choice, in the end contributing to reliable and diverse supply chains. So it sounds like the... Perfect solution for everything, basically. (laughs) Almost. Almost,
0: yes. (laughs) Um, So since we discussed the history of trade in the first part,
2: I would like to know how old competition law is. How did it develop? Right. Competition law has been around for quite some time. Modern competition law has its origins in the United States with the important legislation of the Sherman Act, of 1890, which was later followed by the Clayton Act of 1914. These two pieces of legislation were basically the codification of the common law position on restraints of trade. Actually, it's your area of law. In other words, regulating trade and regulating also monopolies and cartels. Especially after World War II, this type of legislation has also been adopted more broadly in Europe.
0: Okay. So basically, the area where liberty of trade started gave rise to competition law. So everything started with too much liberty. And, well, the liberty in trade led to the rise of competition law in the U.S. And the aim, or was the aim general welfare, or what was the aim?
2: In broader sense, yes. Yes. The history of the US antitrust law involved the regulation of big businesses, and as the name suggests, it's about trusts. Trusts were meant less in the stricter sense of of technical trusts legalistically, but rather used to describe big manufacturing conglomerates that increased in number in the end of the 19th century as a result of the industrialization. Big trusts were often viewed equal to monopolies, you know, and these were considered problematic for several reasons. You can imagine jeopardizing the free trade, economic welfare, but also democracy. Therefore, the US developed uh, legislation that banned several different practices of, of abusive conduct. As a follow-up to this development, Europe has also introduced laws that cartels were widely prohibited and sanctioned by competition authorities, for example, in Germany, this was an important stepping stone to ensure free markets after the Nazi regime, where the German industry was largely cartelized. So indeed, you're right.
0: How does competition law work? I mean, competition law, you said it's basically a solution for everything. Then let's have a look in this solution. What are the rules? What is not allowed?
2: Well, broadly speaking, competition law has four pillars. The main areas of legislation include rules on antitrust, mergers, cartels and a separate fourth pillar on state aid. Okay, and let's maybe
0: leave aside state aid. For our topic, it is mainly relevant to have a look at all the other categories. And then I would like to start with the most obvious and clear category, so the cartels. It's not about drugs, also, but not only, Uh, it's about agreement of any kind,
2: right? Well, of course, there can be also cartels in the area of drugs in the pharma industry. Um, And I'm not sure it's as clear, but um, indeed, it's about agreements and uh, their treatment can very much depend on the case. So, the Cardo prohibition is enshrined in Article 101 of the Treaty of the Functioning of the European Union, which prohibits basically all agreements between undertakings, decisions by associations of undertakings, and concerted practices which may affect trade between member states and which have as their object or effect the prevention, restriction, or distortion of competition within the internal market. Um, Article 101 may be triggered by a range of horizontal or vertical agreements, but cartel activity is considered to be one of the most serious forms of horizontal agreements. Horizontal means that these agreements take place at the same level of the supply chain, for example, between competitors.
0: An example: If uh, IKEA and YSC for instance, indeed, indeed,
2: it's about um, fixing, for example, fixing prices, fixing purchase prices between competitors. This would be seen as a very serious violation of competition law. But there are also other types of agreements. You know, um, some of which are less clear. For example, undertakings between different uh, different levels of the supply chain. Be it manufacturers and distributors, these could be viewed potentially less problematic. Okay, and what is the, the consequence of these agreements? Well, the treaty states that any agreement that infringes the card of prohibition, Article 101, will be automatically void. And then there is uh, further consequences to that. The authorities could take actions And also private enforcement, Uh, for example, private parties can sue the companies that are infringing competition law. So, in fact, coming to solidarity, uh, the
0: European law installs solidarity, so by force. That basically also brings me to the second category you already named, market power. So, the abuse of market power. How do courts or lawyers determine this?
2: Yes, Article 102 um, prohibits, basically, abusive conduct by companies that have a dominant position on a particular market. Now, it is very important to keep in mind that not holding dominant position in itself, but the abuse thereof is prohibited. In other words, the possession or strengthening of a dominant position by competition on the merits does not fall within the scope of this prohibition. Dominance in itself is never an offence. For example, you know, big tech giants, many of us use them on a daily basis. The holding of their dominance per se does not constitute a violation. It is only when the practices lead to results that affect competition and that change the competitive landscape that qualify as an abuse. So without the abuse, there is no violation of Article 102. The um, analysis always starts with the definition of a market. So for example, very banal example, are apples and bananas part of the same market? Well, it's both fruits. (laughs) On Indeed, it's one of the very old leading um, cases, United Brands, where the European Court of Justice rejected uh, the claim of United Brands that the product market was the fresh fruit market overall. Instead, because of the cross-elasticity of demand, the product market was defined as the banana market alone. And for sure, if you look at apples and bananas, you would find different product characteristics, right? And there is one very famous quote in this judgment. The banana has certain characteristics, appearance, taste, softness. And now it comes. These qualities make bananas apt to satisfy the constant needs of the very young, the old and the sick. That's an expression
0: of solidarity.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's always a matter of a case-by-case analysis. But in that case, United Brands had roughly 45% of the U-banana market and therefore it was deemed to have a dominant position. Generally, the Commission takes the view that the higher the market share and the longer the period of time that it is held, the more likely it is to find dominance. So now you see where competition law starts at. Yeah, understood. I'd like
0: to leave the merger you also mentioned aside and rather ask whether cooperation is possible at all under competition law because the way how you described it, it seems to be so broad and it seemed to be that almost all collaboration and business models are prohibited, at least within the European Union. Is this the case?
2: Well, we already talked about Article 101, and the picture would not be full without mentioning also 101, paragraph 3 of this provision. Now, Article One Three of this provision acknowledges that some restrictive agreements may generate objective economic benefits That outweigh the negative effects of the restriction. Thus, these agreements can be exempt from the prohibition. And of course, this allows for collaboration to a certain extent and certain business models which are based on collaboration. Now, this exemption can be applied on an individual basis, but it also can be applied through so-called block exemption regulations. For the latter, there are a few Just to name some, there there are BERs on the transfer of technology, on the food, on agricultural markets, uh, in the insurance sectors and others. And basically, the qualities that are needed for an agreement to satisfy Article 101.3 are the following. The practice must contribute to improving the production or distribution of goods, to promote technical or economic progress, The consumers must receive a fair share of the resulting benefits. This is usually the hardest of the conditions. The restrictions must be essential to achieving these objectives. And finally, the agreement must not give the parties any possibility of eliminating competition in respect of substantial elements of the products in question. So it's rather a differentiated version of... Taking care
0: of the market, don't be too unfair.
2: Well, you can put it this way. It's an efficiency-based analysis, which, is, yes. which combines both legal elements, but also an economic analysis. And, right. uh, you know, there is a very good exemplary case on this, um, also in the area of sustainability concerns, that comes from the Netherlands. Uh, the so-called chickens of tomorrow case i can elaborate on that uh, briefly yeah it would be great the dutch antitrust authority found a violation of competition law in agreements between the supermarkets poultry farm farmers and bro- broiler meat producers who arranged among themselves the selling of chicken meat produced under better animal friendly conditions so-called chicken of tomorrow but which was of course priced at a higher level, and um, the Dutch supermarkets, in the consequence, removed regular chicken meat from the shelves. Now the Dutch authority considered this restrictive practice under the radar of these efficiencies under Article 1013, and it considered that, yes, there is higher animal welfare-friendly standards, but the question is whether these measures are valued by consumers. And the analysis revealed eventually that consumers are prepared to pay more for animal welfare and for better environment, you know, but not for the measures of the chicken of tomorrow. So in sum, it's always an analysis in the individual case. Isn't it cherry picking a bit? And these were the measures that were not
0: appreciated or not confirmed by consumers. We talked about this in the previous episodes already. We need to trust the the consumer a bit, that the consumer is willing to take a certain burden to contribute to the environment.
2: Absolutely, absolutely. And one of the conditions um, for, for these efficiencies is that businesses qualify only when the benefits for consumers exceed the harm inflicted on them, which are usually higher prices and uh, fewer options. So there must be something to, um, you know, outweigh these negative effects. Okay, understood. Thank you for this. Good to know that there are
0: exceptions. So now is our task to bring both topics together. The solidarity from the past and the competition law. And I'm really looking forward to the third part. It's going to be a great experiment. Thank you. The outlook. So now we come to our challenge for today, to combine both areas. Since I have the pleasure of talking to two Marias, Maria Fusaro allowed me to call her maria Sofia. So we detected that both the way how merchants in the past traded and the aim of competition law nowadays try to achieve the very same goal, greater welfare. Why merchants back then did it out of pure commercial concerns and rational considerations to increase profits by minimizing risks. Competition law intervenes in private corporations to protect
1: weaker parties and to ensure welfare for all. Are you sure that this is actually working? I mean, my big concern is that there is an evident growth of inequality all across the world. Uh, a lot of talk about sustainable development, the UN objectives, the need to consider stakeholders and not just shareholders. But my feeling is that in actual practice, this is not really happening. I was listening to Maria's comment about the elements of competition law and the ways in which they fit with as a protective mechanism, if you will, and I was thinking... Ultimately, the entirety of mankind has become a community of risk. Absolutely uh, right. We're yes. all at peril. And maybe a sustainable economy goal would also be to acknowledge that and to try and share the cost of this in a more um, proportionate manner, which is also equitable. True. I mean, of course, that is absolutely right. Um,
0: And in the context of the UN Sustainable Development Goals, there is a presumption that sustainability can only be achieved through welfare for everyone, so at every continent, no matter how poor the circumstances were in which one grew up. But we must also be honest, the intervention was absolutely right, the welfare of the industrial countries is currently built upon the lack of welfare in other parts of the world. We discussed the awful incidences that happened along the supply chains and the lack of responsibility in the previous episodes. But within the context of competition law, I think Maria can tell best what the beneficial purpose of competition law is. So is competition law or does competition law provide a solution, as you said?
2: That's indeed a very good question, and I personally believe it can be part of the solution. Now, sustainability is a very broad concept. Um, In the announcement of its policy paper towards a sustainable Europe in 2030, the Commission describes sustainable development as one that meets the needs of the current generations without compromising the ability of future generations to meet theirs. And uh, the economy, society and the environment, you know, they are all three pillars of sustainability. In my view, sustainability is one of the highest priorities of our time. And in terms of uh, competition law, as we uh, talked about earlier, sustainability benefits can be assessed as qualitative efficiencies. For example, you can replace plastic with wood in toys or use recycled materials, use recycled jeans, this can have various different uh, manners but essentially it's coming it's boiling down to the to the one point to offer efficiencies to which can be beneficial to both the economy the enter- enterprises but also to the consumers in the end uh, everyone is happy to have uh, reduced plastic packaging nowadays which could reduce the costs for materials transport and storage Well, I I mean, we we talked about these topics, um,
0: a few few of these topics, and we will talk about uh, other topics in this podcast also in the future, touching upon different aspects of sustainability. And so it may not surprise the audience that also this discussion today has a relation to this sustainability topic, of course. And there is a recent trend um, to change. And competition law not only looks at the market interests, and takes the market interest into consideration solely, but also external environmental impacts. The Netherlands were pioneers here and developed a new competition law on sustainable partnerships. The European Commission followed, Maria, sustainability is everywhere and no one knows what it means. What is meant by sustainable corporations? A cartel is well protected, also sustainable in a way that it has a long lasting relationship. Uh, Well, of course, until it blows up. Um, What is sustainability uh, regarding cooperation?
2: Right. Um, That's a very good question. And um, you just mentioned the new commission guidelines or the draft rules on cooperation between competitors uh, with regard to sustainability agreements. And um, these draft guidelines are very helpful in that regard to understand better what these let's say, good sustainability agreements are all about. And in the end, it turns out, yes, it is possible, um, for example, to pull information on the supplier's end. This can be permissible to some extent, as long as it does not cross the grey zone or the, the black area of competition law. The draft guidelines set out a number of uh, conditions which, if met, would mean that sustainability standardization agreements are unlikely to raise concerns. For example, if you have a transparent procedure, open and non-discriminatory access to infrastructure, voluntary participation, or if you also have the freedom to adopt a higher standard than a certain standard that has been imposed in the agreement, this would be qualified as a sustainability agreement that would unlikely raise concerns and i think this is very important because this allows for a greater flexibility in the economy yeah i believe especially in the area of sustainability this could greatly improve the conditions for having a more sustainable economy
0: yes i mean that sounds really really broad but it is a way forward definitely it is a way forward to share the risks of mankind what maria sofia said so for the discussion let's focus on one of the sustainability goals because it's the topic is simply too broad namely the sustainable production and consumption the european union seeks to achieve a transition towards a circular economy and within the circular economy supply chain the so called closed-loop supply chain, what we will discuss next episode. And there are no linear supply chains anymore. This means uh, they do not have a clear starting point or a definite moment when that ends. Originally, the supply chain started with a manufacturing process. Then the goods were traded, afterwards sold to a customer that used the product for a while before it was discarded. So the result was and is still, of course, Tons of discarded goods end up in a landfill with no chance of being used as a potential resource or as a potential component of a new product. Within a circular closed-loop supply chain, the resources can be reused. Components are possible to be used in the future. But this, of course, requires a good coordination between all participants of such supply chains. This also means that they need to work with each other and potentially conclude agreements that consists of more than one party and potentially also at the same market level. Multiparty agreements include joint liability and shared risk. And there we have it. So there we have basically a solution and the problem at the same time. Is collaboration possible or does competition law prevent this? Maria.
2: Um, Yeah, unfortunately, the problem and the solution are very close, as you said. The standards will be set also in the new guidelines uh, that we're expecting early next year. But still, an analysis needs to take place on a case-by-case basis. Again, the new draft guidelines of the Commission may bring some clarity in that regard. But still, sustainability agreements cannot be the backdoor through which cartels can be implemented. Many companies will welcome the Commission's initiatives in this area. And of course, this would help to create a more sustainable economy through sustainability agreements. But in the end, it is questionable whether the measures are going far enough. For example, very recently, the Dutch Competition Authority has already expressed some concerns that perhaps more leeway is needed for companies to enter into more meaningful initiatives because these collaboration mechanisms would need to have a certain scale to have uh, certain effects. But yeah, this is an area that is still evolving and we need to see how it goes in the final horizontal guidelines uh, of the Commission.
0: I think there is... In particular, the difference between uh, the past. Uh, Maria-Sophia, you mentioned that there was an imminent risk for the entire community and they had to survive... I think for the companies right now, it's just too far away and this is why the commission has to force them and the development is still in its infancies. Nevertheless, I think then it's even more worth it to take a look back and learn from the history. Maria, Sophia, how did collaboration work back then and did they think about external effects? I mean, now we are talking about external
1: in the sense of environmental aspects. Pre-modern society, Yulia and yeah. Maria, all over the globe had a very low waste. Everything was reused, recycled, and repurposed. And this is possibly one of the most profound cultural differences between us and them. This affected their attitude to the environment uh, and the respect they had towards it.
0: Yeah, a respect. circular
1: economy approach was the absolute norm. Uh, what is needed now is a fundamental cultural shift. Uh, the drive towards bottomless consumption, growth built on consumption, is a very recent development, which is already wrecking the planet. And this connection between being a developed society and a society that consumes enormous amount of resources is what needs to be broken. True. Um, The problem we have, if you will, is that we believe that technology can or will solve all problems every time and everywhere. Uh, We are learning. I hope that this is not the case. And we can learn a lot from the past when this was not an option. Um, Yeah, true. Sorry. Yeah, I,
0: no, no. I mean, when we when we have a look at, uh, especially in maritime or in shipping, all these te- different technologies that can
1: predict every single storm, and back then, absolutely, they they, they didn't have that. But even those technologies that uh, have been helping us predicting storm with incredible accuracy are now working less well than they used to work, even only ten years ago. Because the volatility in the climate variables is so higher. Uh, our seamen ancestors were certainly more respectful and more frightened, if you will, by the force of the sea. But even today certain accidents that happen every day uh, seem on a superficial look, not to should have happened because of our technological powers. Um, you see, Collaboration in the absence of technology, of course, comes more naturally. Uh, We need to get out not only of our uh, drive towards consuming more and more, but also, if you will, of thinking that technology like magic will solve all our problems because it will not. Yeah, and then we we
0: are basically back that also the consumers are part of the risk community facing climate change, facing the planetary risk. In a time where we basically have access to all resources at any time, there is no need to look after one another. That's at least my impression. And we are perfectly fine with living on our own. However, since at least more than a month, also in Europe, we see that there is a possible scarcity of resource supply. There is a scarcity of supply of components and that... Since the war uh, that was started by Russia in the Ukraine, that showed us how hard it is that we um, become independent from resources and that more cooperation is needed. This does not only concern the energy sector, but also production channels that were blocked because the supply of components is not insured anymore. So regarding circular economy and the shortage of resources, what you, Maria-Sofia, said is a major topic. And although it is not omnipresent in our daily life, we must think ahead and it will become an urgent problem once.
1: So, And Julia, yeah. if I may interrupt sure. you, and, and this is relevant for the purposes of energy. Uh, you mentioned the war in Ukraine. Two hours ago, the Italian prime minister uh, supporting the decision of the EU to cut gas imports from Russia, put a very simple question towards the Italian taxpayer, if you will, said, would you like to keep your air conditioner open for the next few months or peace in Europe? So yeah. this distribution also of the cost and sacrifices for yeah. when faced with apparel is also something that particularly the developed world will need to confront. Yes. Definitely.
0: And in the context of circular economy, it requires collaboration and also competition logos in the right direction, doesn't it, Maria?
2: Indeed, um, I would uh, say so as well. Mm. Especially one must uh, consider the development of competition law over the last uh, few years. Sustainability has always been at the top of the EU's agenda. Um, And, um, of course, it's no surprise that uh, it's also sustainability agreements have now found finally place uh, in the horizontal guidelines. But um, back to to, uh, what Maria Sofia said, um, I think that it's a responsibility in the end that would uh, affect not only businesses, but also consumers, it would affect us all. Uh, and of course, in terms of uh, of the economy and in terms of uh, business conduct, um, sustainability cannot be the pretext for you know cartels and uh, exchange of commercially sensitive information. This is made clear also by the new guidelines. So um, in the end, it's about balance, out balancing between the different interests uh, of having fair, competitive markets, but also having a higher quality of um, environmental protection, sustainability um, agreements that um, respect competition, but also contribute to a more sustainability-friendly development.
0: Definitely. I mean, when we talk about all these different interests, I think the easiest solution would be that everyone pulls on one string, because then we do not need this intervention But I think this is development for the future, but I'm really happy that, well, the roots of trade show that there is solidarity, there was solidarity, we just have to learn lessons from the past and competition. More than that,
1: Julia, solidarity is necessary for survival. True. That is the perfect ending, I think. I think we can
0: learn so much from the past and can facilitate sustainable trade by allowing more collaboration for the right things. And... Thank you both for this
1: experiment. Thank you very much. Thank you.